like to begin with a little word association test. What's the first word that springs to mind when I say the word holy? Pure? Sacred? Consecrated? Righteous? Good? Awesome? Different? Separate? Beautiful? Perfect? Maybe lots of other words that you could suggest as well. The word most closely associated with holy is God. Of all the words used in the Bible, which is God's self-revelation of what he's like, holy is the most frequent word used in association with God. In fact, more than all the other descriptive words of God put together in the Bible. Still, it begs a question. When we say and sing, as we have done in almost every song this morning, that God is holy... What do we mean? And more importantly, how do we respond? Let me suggest another word that probably you didn't think of in connection with holy. The word danger. So that you might, for example, put the word holy around and on a nuclear power reactor. Now, for most people, the word danger and God seem to have no association at all. And I would suggest that the reason for this is that most people, including many who have gone to church all their lives, have never, ever really experienced the holiness of God. Instead, we worship a God of our own making or imagining. One who makes us feel good, not bad. Confident, not afraid. But if this book, the Bible, is to be believed as a record of people who encountered God, then the normal reaction when a human being comes into contact with a holy God is one of absolute terror in which you literally fear for your life. And today we look at the account of a man who saw God and lived to tell the tale. Not only of his encounter with God but for the next 40 years 60 years of the danger of ignoring this holy God whom he declared to his own nation again and again to be the Holy One of Israel. The man's name was Isaiah and the account of his encounter with God is in the passage read to us earlier and it will help to have the Bible in front of you and to have a copy near you. If you don't have one, if you just look around, ask someone to pass one to you, it's important that we look at what the Bible says as we seek to understand it page 690 
690 Isaiah 6. This is part of our series on prayer. And so the first thing I want you to notice as you look at this, the chapter is grouped around the three things that Isaiah said to God. Maybe you read the book before in the passage. Maybe you've never noticed the impact of that. And so I want to look at three important themes grouped around the three things that Isaiah said because we're trying to learn how to pray. What to say when you come into contact with God. What's appropriate. Perhaps more importantly, what's not appropriate and when we should keep quiet. So I suggest to you then the first theme that's grouped around the first thing uh, that Isaiah says in verse 5 is the word confession. Confession. Look how he begins his account of what happened. He says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Now it is very easy, and I have no doubt that many of us who have read this before have simply bleeped over the opening verse. All that Isaiah is saying here is, if you want to know exactly when it was historically, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. If you want to know when it was in our dating system, which of course came a lot longer afterwards, 740 BC, give or take a few months or years, is probably about accurate. When Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. However, I want to suggest to you this morning, there is something very unusual and significant here. No other prophet, and only Isaiah once more in Isaiah 14 verse 28, ever dates an event by a death. And as Isaiah is describing his call, the beginning of his prophetic ministry, would it not be more appropriate to link it with another beginning, the beginning of the reign of Jotham, who succeeded Isaiah, his father, when he died? For example, if you were born in 1952, anyone born in 1952? If you were born in 19, nobody's admitting it anyway, but if you were born in 1952, would it not be more appropriate to say, I was born in the year that Queen Elizabeth II became Queen, rather than I was born in the year that King George VI died? So would it not be more appropriate for Isaiah to say, in the year that King Jotham became King, I saw the Lord? However, I would suggest you the wording is not accidental. What is important is not just when King Uzziah, mentioned here, this king, or Ahaziah, as he's also called. What's important is not when he died, but why he died, and how he died. And for that you need to know the Bible. If you've got a Bible, keep your finger in Isaiah, and you should have a Bible. Just go back a few books to 2 Chronicles, chapter 26. Now that's on page 459. 459. Keep the bulletin all your finger in Isaiah 6 through the that in a minute. And it tells us a bit about Isaiah. 2 Chronicles 26 verse 3. Isaiah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. That's an incredible period for any monarch to reign. And a very important period in the history of Judah. He was, he was king of the, of the other half of Israel when it was divided into two in Judah. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. Now, here's the verdict on him. 
he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father Amaziah had done good king whenever you read about the kings in the Bible they're either good king or bad king alright Amaziah is good king but he sought God during the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God as long as he sought the Lord the Lord gave him success and you read on and discover he was successful militarily and economically the people of Israel during his half century rule enjoyed a boom period however however prosperity led to pride turn over the page of the few Bible verse 16 and this is the important bit but after Isaiah became powerful this is 2 Chronicles 26.16 his pride led to his downfall <coughs> he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in they confronted him and said it's not right for you Isaiah to burn incense to the Lord that is for the priests the descendants of Aaron who have been consecrated to burn incense leave the sanctuary for you've been unfaithful you will not be honoured by the Lord God Isaiah who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense became angry while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple leprosy broke out on his forehead when Azariah the chief priest and all the other priests looked at him they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead so they hurried him out indeed he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him King Isaiah had leprosy until the day he died he lived in a separate house leprous excluded from the temple of the Lord Jotham his son had charge of the palace and given the people of the land now do you understand now a little bit more why Isaiah was afraid and why he said in the year that King Isaiah died I saw the Lord the declining years of the king marked the declining years of the prosperity of the nation of Judah a new superpower had emerged in the northeast Assyria threatening every nation and especially Israel and Judah an ominous portent now then the king died and in this very year that the king King Uzziah died Isaiah says I saw the Lord the king the Lord Almighty in the same place if only in a vision where Uzziah had been struck down with leprosy no wonder he was afraid the king the Lord Almighty outranked any mere human king is in a different league in a different realm he is high and exalted even the seraphs these heavenly beings as David explained to the children cover their eyes for fear of looking on God with a pair of their wings and they cry antiphonally to one another and the sound reverberates through the temple holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty the whole earth is full of his glory the doorpost and the threshold shake and the sound of their voices and the temple is filled with smoke and although Isaiah tells us I saw the Lord he makes no attempt to describe what exactly he saw rather he focuses on what he felt abject utter terror indicated by the first words that he speaks look what he says woe to me I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty now I'm told that if you appear before an important dignitary not that I ever have and am ever likely to you are told by officials when to speak and what to say but Isaiah's words are not learned by heart but they come from the heart 
a heart that almost stops beating because he is so utterly terrified. And the reason for it, as one commentator puts it, it is not the consciousness of humanity in the presence of divine power, but the consciousness of sin in the presence of moral purity. Isaiah recognizes his own personal sinfulness, the sinfulness of the people among whom he lives. He cannot join in the praise of heaven, for he's a man of unclean lips. So he really believes that he is ruined, as good as dead, or at least like Isaiah, cursed with banishment from the Lord's presence forever, going around like Isaiah must have done, crying out, unclean. So, is there any hope for Isaiah? Yes, there is, but only if the Lord provides it. And at his bidding, one of the seraphs, the word means, as David said, burning one or shining one, takes a burning coal from off the altar, probably the altar of incense before the Holy of Holies, where sacrifice was made for sin. He touches Isaiah's mouth and declares, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Now, the principle is so important. Confession leads to cleansing. Not just of the lips, but of the life. Can a sinful person see a holy God and live? Only if God provides a means of cleansing, a means by which sin is atoned and covered, by which that relationship with God, which our sin separates us from, is restored by God himself. Now I come to the point. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever stood where Isaiah stood? I do not mean in the temple or some other religious building. I do not mean have you ever seen a seraph fly or felt the smoke in your nostrils or felt the building shake. I mean, have you ever stood in God's presence on holy ground? You see, there are many people today who claim to have had divine encounters. Some speak of it as a feeling of awe and amazement, like a beautiful sunset or a marvellous painting. Others speak of a warm inner glow of love and peace. But here is the biblical litmus test. Have you ever said what Isaiah said and felt what Isaiah felt or something similar? Woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man, a woman of unclean lips I live among a people of unclean lips have you ever felt what Isaiah felt not rapture but terror the only sure test of any genuine encounter with God with the King the Lord Almighty the one who is holy is a deep sense of utter sinfulness and utter desolation well you might disagree with me you may say as many do this is the Old Testament and what you need to do is go to the New Testament because in Jesus God has revealed his other face as it were the face of love as if in some sense that neutralizes God's holiness but that is only a part truth for several reasons at least two first of all we learn something very interesting in the New Testament again you may never notice this but if you've got the Bible keep the bulletin in Isaiah 6 and look at the New Testament book of John chapter 12 page 1080 
John 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him, that is, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. This was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah the prophet, Lord who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53, verse 1. Now, for this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, chapter 6, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they could neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Now, here's the verse, verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Who did Isaiah see in the temple? He saw the Lord Jesus, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus in his glory. And when Jesus was on earth, he didn't change that. His glory, as it was, was veiled for the protection of those who were for one reason, for the protection of those who saw him. And furthermore, the Jesus we worship now, the one in whose name we meet, where is he now? Well, he is the one who died and rose again. He's at the Father's right hand, the man Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, Hebrews 1 verse 3. And what is, what is his appearance like? But well, in the last book of the Bible, keep going in the Bible, we're looking around a lot, you come to Revelation chapter 1 that I've already referred to in the previous song. And here is John the Apostle. This is page 1233. Here is John the Apostle. And he sees on the Lord's day the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He describes him in all his glory. A lot of detail, one like the Son of Man. And what's his reaction? Verse 17, over the page, one, two, three, four. That's the page number. Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So when people say, oh, well, what Isaiah saw is in the Old Testament and different in the New Testament. I hope you can see it's not different at all. The Lord Jesus is still the same risen Holy One. And the only antidote to fear is His Word. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though death, and He placed His right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. It is the holiness of God that reveals to us our own desperate need of cleansing. And it is through the holiness of God's Son who became a sin offering for us that we can be cleansed. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so it's no mere academic question to us have you seen the Lord for it is only in seeing him that we see our true selves and our true need our utter hopelessness apart from God's mercy it is only then that we see the need of a saviour and the reason why he had to die it is only then as we come around the Lord's table that we'll ever appreciate the wonder of God's forgiveness 
And the more you understand of God's holiness, the more you understand of your own sinfulness, and the more amazed you are at the wonder of God's love. And so I ask you this morning, have you seen the Lord? Have you really understood who God is? And who His Holy Son is? The Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Because the Bible says something, and we don't have time to look at it, in the rest of the book of Revelation, it says, unless you've seen Him now, then one day everyone will see Him. And it says the kings and the rulers of the world, when they see Him, they will hide in rocks and caves and cry to them, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. The most important thing in life is to see God and to know the cleansing and forgiveness that only he can give. And only after that can we be of any use in God's service. For after confession and cleansing comes the second thing, commission. The Lord issues his call from the throne. Look at the Lord's question. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Surely, you ask, he need not ask. He is the Lord of hosts. He commands the armies of heaven. Angels do his bidding. Without question, instantly, powerfully, day and night. So why does he ask, Whom shall I send? And why do they, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, say, Who will go for us? And the amazing reason is that God has chosen to use human beings as his messenger to declare the message of a holy God and his amazing love. And not any human being will do. Only those who have stood in God's presence can respond to God's call. Only those who have understood God's holiness can, like Isaiah, speak with knowledge of his holiness. Only those who have been cleansed are fit vessels for the Master's service. Only those who have ever identified with their fellow sinners will be effective messengers. Only those who have cried, Woe is me, can cry to a lost world and our friends and neighbours. Woe are you. C.H. Spurgeon comments, great Baptist preacher from a century ago, Jehovah, who is a consuming fire, can only be fitly served by those who are on fire, be they angels or men. And only such can respond to the Lord's call or refuse. For God graciously seeks our willing response to offer ourselves in his service. So he asks the question and we must respond or refuse. Isaiah responds immediately. Here am I, he says. Send me. And the Lord accepts Isaiah's request but then tells him what awaits him. And it is an unenviable task if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, never understanding, ever seeing, never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What a terrible commission. For 60 years, this man will preach God's word, the holiness of God, and hardly anybody will pay any attention whatsoever. Not only will they not pay attention, there is no way that they can because his message is to confirm them in their unbelief. It's vital to understand the reason why they didn't understand Isaiah's message. It wasn't because it wasn't clear. He was accused, in fact, of his hearers by being, of being childish in his message and approach, chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. No, his preaching was plain and understandable, 
so that no one can make any mistake about what he was saying. No, the fault lay not in the preacher, but the hearer. Not with his clear message, but with their stubborn hearts. They'd closed their minds to the Word of God, and now the Lord would use any, everything that Isaiah said to confirm them in their unbelief and render them without excuse. Now, there are two important lessons here for us, and they're absolutely obvious, but I'll say them to make it clear. One for the hearer, and one for the messenger. The important lesson for the hearer is this. Respond while you can. I say it again. Respond while you can. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you have heard the message of God's loving Christ, which millions in our world have never had the privilege of doing so, if you have understood what it means and what God calls on you to do to turn from your sin and put your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, then I say to you today, respond while you can. Otherwise, you can become entrenched in your unbelief. Again, we don't have time to look at it, but the Lord Jesus Christ quotes these verses, Isaiah's commission, in reference to the Jewish religious leaders to whom he preached. In fact, he quotes it and then follows the parable of the sower, which is all about the seed of God's word and the different soils into which it falls. He came to his own people and they did not receive him. And Jesus says, the reason you don't believe is because of what Isaiah said. What God said to Isaiah. The book of Acts, the account of the spread of the gospel, right at the end of Acts 28, ends with the Apostle Paul quoting Isaiah's words as the Jewish leaders in Rome refused to believe the message and he says, right, I will now go to the Gentiles. This confirms what Isaiah said. And so the gospel spread to the Gentile nations, to people like us. But we can also fall into the same trap as unbelieving Israel. The lesson for the hearer is that truth not obeyed leads to calluses on the heart. I will not believe because I cannot believe. And this is God's final and terrible verdict, his judgment on unbelief. So our prayer should be always, Lord, give me an understanding mind, a responsive heart, and a will that is swift to obey your word. And if you this morning are living in disobedience to God's will, I meet people and they say, well, yeah, I'm absolutely convinced by what you're saying. I know it's right, but I'm not ready yet. You will never be ready. You will never make yourself any more ready. Some people say, well, I know it's true, but there's a lot of good things I want to do first. And listen, when I've got through life a bit, and when I get approach retirement, then I'll think about God. Listen, you only come when God calls. When you retire, you'll be thinking about something else probably. And the Word of God says, the warning of Scripture, based on the Old Testament, Hebrews 3 says, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. A message to the hearer. There's a message to the messenger as well, a lesson. And it is this. Keep on proclaiming the message whatever the response. Our commission is not dependent on the response of the hearers. If they are responsive, we should be very thankful and give God the glory. But if they are not, we must continue nonetheless 
however hard and thankless the task may be. I just cannot imagine being called like Isaiah to preach to people for 60 years knowing that hardly anyone would respond. What's the point of This is a thankless task. But if God calls you to do it, you do it anyway. Nonetheless, like Isaiah, we sometimes wonder what the final outcome will be and ask him how it will end. So note the third thing that Isaiah says, and we're almost getting to the end. It's a question in which he seeks clarification. Then I said, third thing he said, for how long, O Lord? The Lord answers Isaiah's question and warns that devastating judgment is about to fall on rebellious Israel. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains of the land, it will again be laid waste. All the people had said in the previous chapter we read, sarcastically, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it, let him approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come, so we may know it. Isaiah 5 verse 19. Now their wishes were about to come true. The land would be ravaged, the population killed, utterly decimated. The word decimated originally means from Roman warfare where the Romans went through a place and they killed every tenth man. That's what decimate means. One in every ten would be killed. The Lord said, one in every ten will survive. And even less than that. And although a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. It is a colossal tragedy with one cause only. They had heard and refused the word of the Lord. So is there any hope at all? Is Isaiah's task to be completely hopeless? Is there no prospect of salvation? Only judgment? No light? Only darkness? Has God abandoned his people and aborted his plan for the world that began with Abraham all those centuries before? Not at all. The chapter finishes with a glimmer of hope, a prospect of new life growing out of the tree that has been laid waste, the seed of hope. But as the terebinth, in a kind of tree, and oak leaves stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The Lord says to Isaiah, it looks like it's finished, but out of the rubble, out of the wreckage, out of the cut down tree, a little shoot will grow up. A shoot of hope. A believing remnant in Israel centered around Isaiah. And Isaiah sees in his prophecy that this will be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah 11 verse 1 we read it at Christmas so often a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse from his roots a branch will bear fruit the promised Messiah is Jesus the purposes of God narrow and focus in on him and then expand to include the whole world the seraphs cry the whole earth is filled with his glory and what heaven acknowledges but men refuse will finally become a reality later on in Isaiah 11 the prophet looks forward to that day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in conclusion, as we come to this table this morning, as we approach a holy God, how can we do that without fear? We can do it without the kind of fear in which we are afraid for our lives. Because Jesus paid the penalty we deserve in our place, so we need not fear death. Nonetheless, there is no place for casualness 
or complacency. But rather, as the book of Hebrews puts it, we come to God in reverence and in awe. Hebrews 12. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I sometimes think we're far too casual about God's presence, God's holiness. Maybe this morning the Lord is saying to us, we need to restore that reverence and awe which is appropriate in His presence. But at the same time, we also come with another emotion. For if you've experienced this morning God's love in Christ, if you've known what it is to stand before God aware of your own sin and yet experience God's forgiveness and love, there is another experience as well, an emotion of what I would call we stand in amazement. Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone dare to die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we come to the Lord's table, let's celebrate the wonder of what God has done for us. We're going to sing Charles Wesley's great hymn, one of my favourites, And Can It Be?